This podcast from Teacher is supported by QUT's Faculty of Education, because the more you learn, the more they learn. Thanks for downloading this podcast from Teacher Magazine. I'm Dominique Russell. In October last year, the winners of the annual Prime Minister's Prizes for Excellence in Science Teaching in Primary and Secondary Schools were announced. Darren Hamley from Willerton Senior High School in Western Australia and Sarah Fletcher from Benython Primary School in the ACT were awarded with the prizes and they both joined me in today's episode. Darren Hamley, who is the coordinator of Williton Senior High School's Gifted and Talented program, was recognised for his efforts to use science to promote environmental issues, as well as his implementation of several extracurricular programs. Sarah Fletcher is the STEM specialist at Benython Primary School and has been recognised for her contributions to STEM teaching both within her school and in the wider community. Sarah is also motivated by her view that learning happens most effectively when students have an emotional attachment to the topic. I caught up with both Sarah and Darren at the end of last year to discuss the work they're doing in these areas in their own school context to improve science learning. First, we'll hear from Darren, then I'll take you to Sarah. Let's jump in. Williton Senior High School, it's one of the biggest schools in Western Australia. So we've got about, I think it's about 2,600 students and it's quite an academic um, school to begin with. So it's a reasonably high socioeconomic area with a really long history of sort of academic success. And my role here is coordinating the Gifted and Talented program, which is students that have been identified in the top um, about 3% of their age group. That top um, group of students is not selected from the school, it's selected from the state. So there's a gifted and talented selection branch in central office and they, um, they test um, thousands of students. I normally have about probably 2,000 students applying for each year group and I take in two classes. So it's about 2,000 people applying for about 60 positions. So it's very, very competitive. The testing that they do, it's, um, it's a testing of academic potential, not academic performance. So they're not asking year six kids, um, you know, what's the area of a circle or something like that, because they may not have been taught that. So the questions are meant to measure their academic potential. And as a result of that, it's quite funny. We get some parents that come to me and say, hey, I'm really surprised that my daughter got in or that my son got in. But the testing, I believe, is very, very accurate. And those students that are are identified, we just try to get the best out of them. And do you have students that, um, if they're in this program, does that mean that all of their lessons are part of the Gifted and Talented program? Or are they only in Gifted and Talented for science or maths or something? No, they're they're in for everything, which is kind of difficult, really, because some students are gifted in science and maths and definitely not in humanities. Um, But we just have to deal with that. So the students are selected as gifted children and they're across um, science, maths, English and um, and HASS or humanities. And then for other subjects, um, languages, um, uh, phys ed and um, things like that, they're all mixed in with the mainstream kids, which I think is quite healthy to have them mixed in together there. And they're in the program from year seven to 12. Another important sort of um, idea with this is that we can't kick kids out. So once a student has been identified as gifted, they're gifted. And if they underperform, I'm not going to boot them out of the program because that would be stressful as well. They'd be worried they were going to get kicked out all the time. So they are, once they're in, they're in. And if kids are underperforming, um, we 
find out what's going on and what we can do to help that. And I actually employ someone for a day a week to look at results, which is the best thing I've ever done. So I've got 360 students in the program. If any student is underperforming in any area, I find out about it and I will see them and say, hey, you know, what can we do to help you? So, you know, they're not in trouble for getting poor results, but, um, and we fix that. So, for example, a student in year 11 chemistry might be normally getting sort of 80% and they'll all of a sudden come back with a 60% and I'll say, hey, what's going on? And they say to me, look, I really don't understand equilibrium equations. And so then we pay for a tutor and, um, and we get the tutor to basically get them to where they should be. And so talking just a little bit closely more about the science aspect of this program, can you talk me through perhaps some of the opportunities that these students get that are part of this program to do particularly with science? Okay, our main thrust here is with authentic experiences. Um, I, I, science has changed. I mean, I've been a science teacher for, well, since 80, 1984, which sounds ridiculous. And we really did back then just teach facts and science was a factual based um, area and but things have really changed now and we don't need to do that so I'm more interested in teaching students to be scientists rather than teaching them just science and we still do some facts obviously but um, it's that scientific process and also that's what kids want from science you know they they want the sort of to really get their hands dirty and I think some kids come in from primary school and possibly a little bit disappointed and I'm really keen on them just getting their hands dirty and as I've said on a number of interviews that my ultimate aim is for them to go home burst to the door and say you wouldn't believe what I did at school today and that's what we do so and that's through all these authentic experiences. Yeah and I read as well that some of the authentic experiences um, have quite a bit to do with the environment and conservation which I found quite interesting so can you talk me through what those experiences are and why that's important to you for the kids to learn? Uh I mean, I'm passionate about the environment, but kids, gifted children, well, not just gifted children, I'm, I'm going to talk about gifted children because that's what I do, but all children, sure. but particularly gifted children, um, one of the characteristics of gifted children is um, ethical concerns at a young age. And I think that's something that we really need to exploit. And a lot of these students do have real environmental um, passion. The other characteristics that are really common are early reading and an intense interest so most gifted children have something they're really, really passionate about. But So it's that ethical concerns at an early age that I'm trying to really um, delve into. I do a lot of dolphin research. There's a place about 800 kilometres north of Perth called Monkey Mire, uh, which has um, dolphins that come into the shore um, and they get fed every day by the rangers up there. Um, and I volunteer up there a lot. Uh, and I, when I'm in the water with the dolphins, um, I have a hydrophone attached to my ankle and I take recordings of them. And I've taken students up there a number of times and we're heading up there in two weeks with students again to get more dolphin recordings. And we've been looking at the um, what we call resting echolocations. So the dolphins echolocate um, for navigation and for foraging, but they also, when they're sitting beside me um, waiting for their fish, waiting to be fed, they just sort of hum this gentle echolocation and that's what we're recording. And there's, I've, I haven't managed to find anything on the literature in this and what we're looking at is how the echolocation frequency changes with, um, without anthropomorphising too much but with looking at the dolphin state of mind if you like and we find that the echolocation frequency is very very low and all of a sudden it, it goes from 40 hertz up to as, as high as 400 hertz 
and then suddenly drops off again. And what's happening, it's when the dolphins see a fish with their eyes, not with their echolocation, they see a fish with their eyes, they get excited. I shouldn't use a word like excited, but they get excited and this echolocation frequency spikes. And when I hand them a fish, it's ah, and the echolocation drops off again. And um, it's really, really original research that the students are doing. And there's just something about working with dolphins that we all love. Um, and these kids just think it's fantastic. The other dolphin research we're doing is there's a number of dolphins in our Swan River here that have had fishing line entanglements. And I've taken photographs of those dolphins. Um, we then make 3D models of them. They're one eighth scale models. And I've got a big drop tank um, at school here. We drop those models um, down this tank to work out the degree of drag that is experienced by um, varying damage to their dorsal fins and it's very significant. So a, a reasonably small cut in the dorsal fin that makes it flop to the side has an enormous effect on the performance of their swimming. And, and this is to encourage people to basically stop leaving fishing line lying around the river. And I also read as well that um, you've got a bunch of extracurricular clubs that are based on science at the school. So I'm interested then in like how you decide which of these extracurricular clubs you get off the ground running and why they're successful with the students there. Okay, look, the, the reason this started was because as the coordinator of the program, I'm sort of also in charge of the sort of social welfare of these students. And walking around at lunchtime, there's a lot of my kids that find a little nook in the school and they'll sit there by themselves and maybe read um, or basically just sit there. And, and lunchtime for some of these kids is the longest half an hour of their life. So I've actually got a club um, every lunchtime and it's not just for these kids that have trouble making friends, but that's how it started. And um, it really just started by word of mouth, but uh, our school also holds at the beginning of the year a club day where at lunchtime, all of the school clubs are on display in the quadrangle and they, they, um, they have, I have students at desks and they are explaining to everyone what they do at these clubs. So um, they sound really daggy, but um, they, they work. So I've got a, um, on Mondays, I have a, a dolphin club and we um, try to raise awareness about um, dolphin um, damage or so pollution in the river causing damage to their dorsal fins is one thing we do there. Um, and next week we're going out to a primary school and we're talking to a year one class about dolphins and doing a little dolphin um, craft activity with them just to raise awareness with these kids as well and they're really excited about that. I have a, um, on Wednesday I have a chess club which we have up to about 50 students playing chess uh, which is fantastic and we've won statewide tournaments with that as well. Um, I do a Rubik's Cube club which is one of my favourites. I love the Rubik's Cube and the students here um, practice different algorithms to um, reduce their times. I'm interested then for other teachers who are listening to this episode who might be interested in setting up a really successful and robust gifted and talented program. What are some good things to keep in mind? It's a funny way that it started. Um, going back, way back to 1992, um, it was my first year at this school and my, my principal, who was a real innovator, he he was quite a gruff, sort of grumpy man at times. And he, he saw me at recess on, I think it was about the second last day or maybe even the last day of the year. And he said, Hamley, I want to see you in my office straight after school. And I thought, oh no, what have I done? Because he was telling people off having their hair too long and the, all sorts of things he'd get in trouble for. And um, you know, I went to his office and he said, he said, son, I like what you do. He said, I'm going to give you 0.2 off. So a day off a week 
next year for a project. And so I said, what's my project? And he said, what I want you to do is come back in 12 months time and tell me how wisely you've used the point two I've given you. Absolutely bizarre. I mean, you couldn't do that nowadays. It was sort of in a biblical sort of way almost. So I went away over the holidays and thought, what could I do with this point two to impress my principal? And, um, and so I came up with the idea of having a gifted program. So I started as an after-school club. We would meet um, in a little demountable classroom just after school once a week. And the way we started was um, was doing uh, competitions. So maths competitions and science competitions generally. And rather than just getting good students to enter competitions, what we did was we did training. Just like a sports person would train for a race, when we were doing a maths competition, we trained and we trained really hard. So I got old copies of tests and we went through this meticulously and we worked out strategies and we went in these competitions and we won them we won just about everything we went in because of the training and plus I had good kids and from there that started getting into the newspaper and then more people wanted to join the club and then the school said hey this is too good to run after school we need to do it in school in class so we replaced science with a with a talented science we called it and then um after a few more years, that became embedded across the curriculum. And now I've got 360 students in the program and I've got 19 staff. Um, so it's, it's grown from strength to strength. And the, so the beginning, what I would concentrate on is advertising, just like a business would. Um, and so it's, the local newspapers are really keen for good stories. And so we were in the paper probably every second or third edition of something that these students were doing and then people say hey I want to come to this school. Coming up we'll hear from Sarah Fletcher from Benitham Primary School in the ACT but first here's a quick message from our sponsor. You're listening to a podcast from Teacher Magazine supported by QUT's Faculty of Education QUT's postgraduate courses in education now give you more options to take your knowledge and confidence to the next level. Custom build your own qualifications by choosing to specialise in areas such as inclusive education, leadership, First Nations education, trauma-aware schooling and more. Make an even bigger difference in the classroom with a postgraduate course in education from QUT. Okay, so I'm the STEM specialist at Benython Primary School in the ACT. Um, Benython is a true inquiry school. So the entire school operates from a lens of inquiry. We use um, Kath Murdoch. We work with Kath a lot. And I think it's probably the first school that I've ever been in who say that they're inquiry and actually are to the point that as teachers, we are allowed to um, conduct our own professional learning in an inquiry manner, which really allows us to tailor it to ourselves, which is amazing. Um, so my role is that I address the aspects of the science achievement standards that the classroom teachers don't. So things that are difficult to fit into your general inquiry, and it's usually things around your physics and your chemistry and um, astronomy, geology, things that don't naturally fit into their class inquiries because obviously I can't address the whole of the science curriculum in sometimes under an hour a week. So just adding to what the teachers are doing. 
So I, the next thing that I found really interesting was you had mentioned that real learning can happen when students have an emotional attachment to what is being taught. So why is, from your perspective, why is an emotional attachment so important and beneficial for students? I think it's true of all learning and it's to do, I worked with a neurologist around this and it's, it works to help create those myelinated fibres which entrenches things in memory but especially with science because you think about how they have gained their existing understanding and it's from a personal direct experience and so just telling them something is not going to change that because you telling them won't change their personal experience so they need to have an experience which challenges any misconceptions that they have and they then need to experience that new way of thinking for themselves or it's not going to change their mind because as i said it's nothing is more concrete to them than what they can see feel hint think here from their own perspective so you can talk until you're blue in the face but you're not going to change any misconception unless they have an experience that challenges that I always tell people they always think that my favorite science lesson is going to be something like explosive or but it's not my favorite is actually it, it came out of one of the primary connections units but it's when we're looking at the states of matter at a young age and the kids have this misconception that air is only around us if you can feel it, if it's blowing on you or, and so you basically just give them a freezer bag and they collect air and they get so excited. They're like, oh, I found air under the desk and I found air in the cupboard. And they will literally do that for days and then just tell you all of the places that they found air. And that would have to be my favorite lesson of all time and all it takes is a freezer bag. Fantastic. Um, and it, on emotional attachment as well, in terms of learning, um, I'm interested then in, have you had any experience in using that with reluctant learners in particular? Is that something that's particularly useful for those learners? Um, look, I think with, I'm, I'm really lucky. I'm teaching a subject that kids innately want to be part of. So, I'll, the reluctance, I think, comes from being able to communicate what they're learning. And I mean, because just by its nature, kids can't help themselves getting involved in science. They literally just, they try, even if someone comes in and, oh, in a cranky mood, I'm not going to do that. They can't help it. They, they start getting involved. But it's that giving them the facility to show their understanding in multiple ways. And this is something I'm really passionate about because I have a son who's in year five and he's severely dyslexic, but he's also incredibly intelligent. And in the achievement standards in the national curriculum, it doesn't actually state that you need to show something in writing until they're in their later years of primary schools. And that's only one aspect. So I think people look at things the wrong way. So for an example, to look at the assessment I recently conducted for my five sixes around electricity, my assessment was a photo of the, the circuits they created in their shoebox house. And so I think it's giving them that opportunity. And I will explicitly state this to kids. I am not assessing what you're putting on your page right now. So if you're having trouble getting your ideas out, I'm happy to video you. I'm happy to ascribe for you. And I think that gives the reluctant learners that freedom to just breathe 
to when you're not assessing, you're not assessing their writing all the time. And if you can get that clear to them, but I think also creating a space where it's okay to make a mistake. So I, I like to use Leonardo da Vinci during his time when he was creating the first ideas of helicopters and other sorts of new technologies, everyone thought he was mad, ready to commit him to an insane asylum. But without those, what people often see as silly ideas, there's no innovation. So creating that space of there's no such thing as a wrong answer in science, because science fact is just what we know right now, it changes. It's not a static thing. So without people taking risks, without people making mistakes, we would never have anything new. And creating that safe space for kids to, to speak up without fear of ridicule or someone saying, oh no, you're wrong. I think that's probably a big, a big thing for the reluctant learners as well. I saw that you worked to develop strong relationships with other local schools in your area to give power to that cross-age mentoring. So can you describe what's meant by cross-age mentoring for me? The reason why I started down that road because it was because I was in a primary school and there was this real disjoint for kids with what the various levels of education provided. And so that's where I started the ANU enrichment event and it was you know six primary schools working with um, mentors from their feeder high schools. And then having the, in, in the ACT, we have seven to 10, and then we have separate colleges, 11 and 12. And then using the college students as communications people, and then we work at a university for the day. So it's getting that conversation happening between the kids about, oh, what do you do in science at high school? And oh, what do you do at uni? And just showing them that progression and then they then take that information back to their schools. And I think it just, it, it gets the information out there because unless you've had a parent or an adult in your life who has got higher education or who has attained a degree, then there is a lot of confusion. I think particularly with the language used in television with um, the American sort of way system calling university college. I had a lot of kids thinking that you go to college or uni. I was like, well, no, 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 no. <laughs> and so it's, it was partly that, but also just to show them that there's more scope to choose. So, for example, I'm taking my STEM, my girls STEM enrichment group to our local college for the day just to, so they're observing a year 11 physics class. And then they're, I'm a bit excited because we're delving back into my field of science where we're going to do some stomata density slide viewing. Um, that's the holes that let leaves breathe, um, which is something I did as part of my evolutionary genetics studies and just letting them see what it's like. Because I think there's a period within science education where kids can get bored to a degree and just saying, well, you know, we don't always get to do exactly what we want to do, but the more, the longer you push through, the more scope you have to individualize, I guess. So creating that sort of transparency of the education process, not just for them, but for their parents to understand too. So I think it's not as, particularly being an inquiry school, you tend to steer away from things that stay the same all of the time. You create those relationships and contacts on a needs basis. And that makes sure that it's, 
relevant and it's not just a thing that we do because we've always done it. And another thing that may come into this, um, I've seen that you've been labelled as an innovative and an imaginative educator. So do you have some examples of, of why that might have been a label for you? Um, I think just because I have a problem. <laughs> when, I, when I try to think simply I can't, I just say so the ANU enrichment event started as a, my principal said, oh, well, why don't we get the kids going to the local high school? And I said, no let's take them to ANU and let's get the high schools involved and let's invite lots of schools. And I just, I don't know when to stop, I think is, is part of it. But also I'm not afraid to pick up the phone. And, you know, in the early days of me doing this, I'd probably get, you know, 15 knockbacks for every yes that I got. But now it's the opposite. So I have people contacting me. Do you know any schools that would be interested in this? And I think, we're really lucky in Australia because a lot of our big institutions are creating education resources. And I think the reason I was labelled sort of with the innovative label is because I hunted those down in the early days and created a forum to share that. And I'm pushy. I don't take no for an answer. <laughs> so I think that's, that's sort of part of it. And just changing the mindset. So a big thing for me was um, looking at science in primary, I personally believe that's when you need to get kids hooked. It's too late in year 10. And I found a lot of the outreach programs were only targeting year 10 students. By that time, if they then choose to do science in year 11 and 12, but they haven't done advanced maths, then they're out of the running for a science degree immediately. So that was my argument to them. And I was just really fortunate that some of my contacts from my university days at ANU were in the hierarchy then and so they were allowed to allowed me to sort of get the foot in the door. I think my advice for teachers when they're developing the science within their school is to make sure that they're doing two things and that is to be able to connect what the kids are learning to their real life experience but also to build on skills and I think it's essential that once those skills are built, you need to create a problem solving situation. And it can be as simple as when I'm looking at the states of matter with my year one twos, the problem solving situation is I present them with a bucket full of dirty water that has liquids, solids, um, liquids of different densities mixed like oil and water. Now that we know what we know about the states of matter, how can we solve this problem? That's a real life problem. So what higher institutions are telling me that's lacking in the students upon entry at a university level is that problem solving capacity, the grit to work through a problem and not necessarily get answers the first time and to be able to work through, well, what are we doing that we can change to fix that? And that is in the achievement standard all the way through in the science at a primary level. Yet I think it's the thing that people miss teaching the most because they're so they get so wrapped up in teaching that content whereas in my mind the content is just the driving force to deliver those thinking and working skills that are crucial in science so I think if I was helping anyone set up their school science program that would be my driving force is to make sure that they have built that into it because that's what our kids really need.
That's all for this episode. If you'd like to hear from previous winners of the Prime Minister's Prizes for Excellence in Science Teaching, we've spoken with 2019 winners Sarah Finney and Samantha Moyle, 2018 winner Brett Crawford, and 2017 winners Brett Mackay and Neil Bramson in past podcast episodes. You can find the links to these three episodes in the full transcript for this podcast, which is published at teachermagazine.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up to the free teacher bulletin so you never miss a story. You've been listening to a podcast from Teacher, supported by QUT's Faculty of Education, because the more you learn, the more they learn.